love one another. That was God's command to us in Romans chapter 13. Loving one another is one of the main ways you and I worship God. It's one of the main ways we respond to God's mercy. And God has shown us mercy by sending a Savior from sin, by accepting us through faith in that Savior. And now we are to love one another. That's what we are called to do. And now as we continue in Romans, we get the details. Actually, Paul has already said plenty about love in chapters 12 and 13 of Romans. But now he begins to give us a guided tour of love in action. So turn with me to Romans chapter 14. And we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1140, or in the large print, 1763. And we're going to read from chapter 14, verse 1, down to the middle of verse 13. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master servants stand or fall, and they will stand. For the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord. And gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life. So that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then... Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. This is God's word. 
What does it mean to love one another? In verse 1, Paul says it means accepting the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. There's a lot packed into that statement. So first of all, let me give you the main point of verses 1 to 4, and then we'll look together at the details. Verses 1 to 4 call us to embrace those God has embraced. The word used in verse 1 is accept. But the way we tend to use that word makes it feel a bit flat. There's not much warmth to it. A few weeks ago, Alex Salmond accepted the no vote in the Scottish referendum. But there was no sense in which he was enthusiastic about it. This year, Liverpool fans have accepted the fact that our success last year was down to one player. And he's not there anymore. No Liverpool supporter is happy about that. But there's nothing they can do about it. But when Paul uses the word accept here, he's not using it in that way. He's not talking about begrudging acceptance. A good translation would be welcome with open arms. The way Alex Salmond would have accepted a yes vote. The way Liverpool fans would accept a return from Luis Suarez. In fact, this word accept is the same word Jesus used when he promised to come back and take his people to be with him for all eternity. And I hope you're not expecting Jesus to come reluctantly to accept you. And here we are called to give the same warm welcome. We're to accept people into our heart with all our heart. And we're to give this kind of acceptance to the one whose faith is weak. What does that mean? Well, Paul is writing to a specific church fellowship here, the church in Rome. And he explains how people are displaying weak faith in that church. Verse 2 says those whose faith is weak eat only vegetables. Later he says those whose faith is weak consider one day more sacred than another. And beyond where we read in chapter 14, he says those whose faith is weak do not drink wine. What on earth is that all about? Well, we know from the examples Paul gives, he's not saying these people have a weak faith in Jesus. He's saying they're weak in living out their faith in Jesus. These are almost certainly Christians from a Jewish background. They have understood the good news about Jesus. They know they can't do anything to earn God's favor. They have put their trust in what Jesus did. Dying on the cross, in their place, punished for their sin, so they could be forgiven and accepted by God. These men and women Paul's talking about have received new life in Christ. 
but they haven't yet worked out all the implications of their new life. You know from the New Testament that Jesus declared all food to be clean. He said, what goes into your stomach doesn't make you unclean. But these Christians are still nervous about eating meat in a Gentile city like Rome. Maybe, they wonder, maybe it's not kosher meat. In other words, it's not been slaughtered according to Old Testament regulations. And so they know what Jesus said. They know what they eat and drink has nothing to do with their salvation. But they still have scruples about it. And they still feel they should observe the Jewish Sabbath and the Jewish festivals. It just doesn't feel right not to. Now you'll notice Paul leaves us in no doubt what he thinks about those scruples. He says the believer who has them is weak. The believer who doesn't have those scruples is strong. But also notice, Paul makes no effort here to change the views of these weak believers. Paul is not interested here in putting them right. Instead, his point is, these weak believers are to be welcomed with open arms by the other believers. They are to be embraced, verse 1, without quarreling about disputable matters. In other words, don't accept them into the fellowship in order to jump all over them and try to sort them out. Paul isn't trying to do that. And no one else in the church is to do it either. He says, embrace them. Don't look down on them. Don't make them your personal theological project. Take them into your heart. Now, if you and I are going to get the application for ourselves right here, we have to focus on this phrase, disputable matters. Other translations say opinions. This is key. Paul is not saying anything goes in the church. He is not ruling out rebuke in the church or church discipline. He is not talking here about things the Bible is clear on such as God's creation of the world, God's blueprint for sex, Jesus' divinity, his death as a sacrifice for sin, his resurrection, his future return. When people disagree about those things, it is not because the Bible is unclear. In those matters, it's a question of either accepting what the Bible says or choosing to reject what the Bible says. Nowhere in Paul's letters does he say, welcome with open arms those who are weak in those matters. Paul has strong words of condemnation for those who reject the Bible's clear teaching. Where the Bible's teaching is clear, there is no room for different views. But here he's talking about matters where those who love God's word and want to submit to it fully still come to different conclusions. 
Paul is not talking here about situations where it's a simple matter of taking or leaving Scripture. He's talking about issues where Scripture is less clear. Questions where there's work to be done interpreting and applying Scripture. He's mentioned the examples of food and days. And those matters are still disputed today. We know, don't we, that Christians differ in their views about the use of alcohol. And I know at least one Christian who believes that according to their study of the Bible, we should all be vegetarians. That's a conviction that person has, and they believe it's biblical. Christians differ over whether Sunday is a holy day or simply a convenient day for us to gather together for worship. Some Christians object to celebrating certain days in the traditional church calendar. I read an article last week by a man who thinks Christians shouldn't celebrate Christmas. Now, he doesn't think we should ignore Christ's birth. He thinks we shouldn't celebrate it particularly on December 25th. And if I were to ask you for a show of hands this morning on all those things... I'm sure there would be differences of opinion here. I'll give you a couple of other examples. Christ's return. I've just pointed out that every Christian believes he is returning. But we differ widely, don't we, on the question of how he's going to do it. How is it going to happen? What are the order of events going to be? Baptism. Christians differ on that too. And I mean Bible-loving Christians who are determined to honor God. Is it for the infant children of believers? Or is it only for believers? Of course, the answer is obvious, right? But it's obvious to the people who disagree with you too. Genuine believers come to different conclusions from their study of Scripture. And we could go on and on with these disputable matters. Spiritual gifts. Are all the gifts mentioned in the New Testament still being given by the Spirit today? Which gifts are most important? Music. That's a disputable matter. How much direction does the Bible give us about styles and instruments? Some Christians think we can come up with very specific guidelines from Scripture. Others think we're only given general principles. And we have a pretty free hand in what we can do musically. Now please, please, don't listen to all this and decide that none of those things matter. They do matter. We can see here in our passage, Paul believes there are right and wrong answers for all those disputable matters. He says some people are weak in their views and others are strong. So you and I should not be ignoring disputable matters. We should be searching scripture humbly, praying we'll come to a true understanding of all that scripture teaches. 
We're not to back away from the disputable issues. But here is Paul's point, and we mustn't miss his point. I am to warmly accept those Christians who disagree with me on these things. Not just put up with them. I am to take them into my heart. Not just invite them around so I can batter them with my own convictions. And why am I to accept those who disagree with me? Because, at the end of verse 3, God has accepted them. The acceptance God commanded us to give in verse 1 is the same acceptance he has already given. John Stott says this, How dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude to them is. Has God accepted everyone? No. The earlier part of Romans told us who he does accept. It told us everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord involves accepting him as Lord. As the one who left heaven and died for us and was raised and now reigns. God accepts those who call on that Jesus as their Lord. Trusting him for salvation. Submitting to his authority over their lives. Those are the people God welcomes with open arms. And so must we. Even if we think they're wrong about baptism, or music, or spiritual gifts, or the details of Christ's return. That's why we have differing views on all those things within the membership of, that, of this fellowship. It's not because we believe all views are equal on those things. It's not because we believe those things don't matter. It's because we're a fellowship of men and women who've been forgiven at the cross. If you have received God's mercy through Christ and you're seeking to live a life of worship in response to that mercy, then you belong here. And so, the question for us to ask ourselves is, am I personally welcoming with open arms those I disagree with? Am I taking these brothers and sisters into my heart? Now, some of you might say, well, I don't know much about those theological questions. So there's really no challenge for me here. I don't really have views on those disputable matters. 
So let's ask a different question. What about the fearful person? The one who always seems to be doubting. The one who always has burdens they need help with. Are you willing to take that person into your heart? The one whose faith is weak in that way. Or what about the person who's convinced they're the strong one? You know the kind of person I mean. The person who has all their views nailed down. The person who comes across actually as a bit brash and a bit overbearing. The kind of person who has trouble listening to you, but who's very quick to tell you what you should be doing. Are you willing to take that brother or sister into your heart? Am I? This passage is here to challenge me and you, not the person beside us. I'll give you a personal confession at this point. The name Ian Paisley will be familiar to most of you, I'm sure. And it probably provokes a reaction in most of you. I grew up in Northern Ireland at a time when Big Ian was on the TV almost every night of the week. And he was almost always shouting. As I grew up, I came to see him as an embarrassment not only to Northern Ireland, but also to the church. I looked down on him. I saw him as pompous and self-righteous. And maybe I even felt contempt sometimes. But since he died this year, plenty has been written and said about him. And just last week, I came across this. It's a personal memory of Ian Paisley from a Roman Catholic man in Northern Ireland. The article says, on the 8th of January, 1989, Bernard McNally was in Belfast. He was waiting for his 21-year-old son to return to Belfast on British Midland Flight 92. The plane did not arrive. It had crashed off the M1 at Kegworth. Of the 126 people aboard that plane, 47 died and 74 were seriously injured. Relatives flooded to Belfast Airport, waiting for news. Mr. McNally said, I was told my son had swapped his seat with a young woman. There was no news of him. I was overwhelmed. Suddenly, I felt a firm hand on my shoulder. I looked up. Of course, I recognized him. The enemy. He and his wife had come down to the airport to pray with people. He said, son, can I pray for you? I said, I'm a Catholic. 
He said, that doesn't matter. I'm here to pray with anyone who needs comfort at this time. Well, as soon as I heard that, I started to cry. I couldn't help it. And for the next hour, this gentle man came alongside me, spoke to me, prayed with me, read from the Bible, and told me he would continue to pray that my son would make it. The report goes on to say the son did make it. I read that article and it was a rebuke to me. Now, it didn't convince me that everything Ian Paisley did and said was right. It was a rebuke because I judged him without knowing everything about him. So the question is do you have an Ian Paisley? Maybe even within this fellowship. Someone you look down on. Someone who gets under your skin. Maybe it's because they're too brash and too loud. Maybe it's because as far as you can see, they're just too weak in the faith. Are you willing to stop for a moment and consider that God has welcomed that person with open arms? They may seem like a liability most of the time. Like a Christian bull in a china shop. Or maybe too timid, too hesitant, not able to pull themselves together. But despite all their imperfections, that person loves Jesus. They want to honor Jesus. And he is working with them. He is leading them to share in the glory of God one day. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand. For the Lord is able to make them stand. Now again, as I mentioned earlier, Paul is not ruling out rebuke when a brother or sister is sinning. He's not ruling out firm guidance when a brother or sister is being foolish. He deals with that in other places. But here, he's not calling us to sort out the weak person or shut up the strong person. He's calling us to embrace them because he has embraced them. Paul goes on to say, make sure your own motivation is to live for your Lord. 
Verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another person considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul says in verse 5, Whatever view you hold on disputable matters, whatever course of action you take, make sure you're fully convinced about it. Meaning, fully convinced because you've prayerfully searched the scriptures and decided this is what scripture is really saying. You and I are not to hold a view just because it's the most convenient view for us to hold. Because it's easy. If you come to a passage that doesn't sit well with your view on spiritual gifts, for example, don't ignore the passage. Let it challenge and even change your view. Whatever position you hold on these disputable matters, hold it because you sincerely believe it's what the Bible teaches. Don't hold it because the culture around you is pressuring you to accept that particular view. And that can be pressure from the culture outside the church or the culture inside the church. We can end up holding a view just because it's the tradition in our particular church. Sometimes traditions need to be reformed according to the teaching of Scripture. And it's true too, if some of us can be driven to give in and go along with tradition unquestioningly, some of us can be driven by a desire to rebel against church culture and tradition. To try and stand out on principle by always taking the unorthodox position, whatever it happens to be. We have to have integrity in this. We need to be honest with ourselves. Our views and our actions have to be molded by Scripture as we study it with a sincere desire to submit to God's Word, to submit to our Lord. And when you have a fellowship of men and women who are all doing that, then even where there's disagreement, there can be genuine unity in worship. In verse 6, Paul describes a situation where people with differing views are all holding their views and living out their views to the Lord for his honor and glory, not for their own personal convenience, not to make a point, not to elevate themselves or draw attention to themselves. 
we can worship together when it's like that, can't we? That brother or sister might be more straight-laced than you in their musical tastes. Or maybe more exuberant than you. You might think that other brother or sister is mixed up with their ideas about Christ's return. But when you know they love Jesus and want to live and think for his glory, you can take them into your heart, can't you? You know they're not singing that way just to annoy you. You know they're not disagreeing with you on purpose. So let's focus then on being like that ourselves. Being people that others can take into their hearts because they know we want to honor Jesus. They can see we're not trying to be difficult. We're trying to be obedient to our Lord. And finally in our passage, Paul says, remember each of us will answer to God. Verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Is Paul saying here that Christians can end up being condemned on the judgment day? No, he's not. For those who are in Christ, the verdict of Judgment Day has already been announced in advance. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We learned that in chapter 8. We can be sure of the final verdict today when we're trusting in Jesus. So then, what is Paul talking about? Well, remember what he said in verse 1. The topic here is disputable matters, not core truths. We're talking about matters where Christians hold different opinions. Not because there's no right opinion, but because the right opinion is hard to figure out sometimes. What the Bible teaches on the matter is not immediately obvious sometimes. And here, Paul says, Christians are finally answerable to God for those matters, not to other Christians. So, I can discuss those matters with you. I can try to prove my own convictions from Scripture with you. But if I pass judgment on you in that matter, whatever it is, then I'm taking on a responsibility that God hasn't given me. And if you're tempted to do that, to take on a judgmental attitude, the message is, don't concern yourself with what God's going to say to him or her over there. Concern yourself 
with what he's going to say to you about your judgmental attitude. How do we get this right? How do we have hearts that are truly open to our brothers and sisters? Well, we have to see the wonder that God's heart is open to us. Because when I think of how God has accepted me, how can I turn away from you? How can I show contempt for you when God has shown grace to me? who deserved all of his contempt. In a moment, we're going to sing. And the final song I want you to listen to this says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt, not on others, but on all my own pride. The cross helps us to love one another. It reminds us how God has loved us, how he still loves us. So let's sing this together. When I survey the wondrous cross. <laughs>